0: Hi, this is Alan and Leon. Welcome to Seize the Moment podcast, episode 16. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, Her name is Steph Kent, and she's a writer, multimedia producer, interested in creativity, sports, and literature. Steph uh, co-founded the new literary website, Call Me Ishmael, where she curates anonymous stories about books and soldiers' vintage payphones into literary installations. The project received a National Book Foundation Innovations in Reading Honor, and was shortlisted for a Webby Award. Welcome, Steph.
1: Hi, guys. Thanks. Good to be here. And thanks so much for coming on
2: yeah thanks for having me
1: so I mean I was kind of telling Alan when we were sort of perusing for different guests that I ended up finding you through Gordon Marino's page so and for obviously for those of our guests who know so Gordon Marino was a former guest of ours a phenomenal philosopher and boxer and writer and so like I came across your page and particularly before I came across your page I came across the Call Me Ishmael page which Mm -hmm. I thought was like such a fantastic idea and like for me I mean I think it's kind of very rarely that I'm blown away by different ideas especially kind of in Mm -hmm. our sort of tech age where it's like like, I mean, very few times is there really anything truly new under the sun. Like, with iPhones, I mean, it's kind of like a regurgitation of pretty much old conceptions. And so when I came across your page and I came across the concept that you guys created, I was like, holy shit, like, that is really fucking cool, especially for some for guys like us who absolutely love books. And so can you tell a little bit, or can you tell our audience a little about what Call Me Ishmael is?
2: Yeah, totally. And it's so funny that you say that it's something new because in a lot of ways, my co-founder and I always joke that it's like just sort of bringing up things that were once new that we've kind of like recycled and sort of brought back to audiences that are sort of nostalgic for them. So uh, for instance, the project kind of started with this idea of like a voicemail box. Uh So uh, my partner and I were at a bar just kind of talking about first sentences of books. We both have this sort of obsession with like browsing bookstores by reading first sentences and um, started talking about one of the most famous first sentences, Call Me Ishmael, which is of course from um, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And just kind of like spotted this pun of like, what if Ishmael was a person with a cell phone?
1: Uh-huh. And so,
2: just kind of as um both worked in media, and so just as sort of an experiment, set up um, a Google Voice inbox and sent it around to a couple great readers we know and asked them to leave messages about the books that they loved. And right away, we noticed that the project was kind of interesting because people weren't just giving like, book report style summaries or recommendations for books they're actually telling us like their favorite stories about the books that were important to them so like for instance we got um one of the first ones was about dr seuss's book the sneetches and um this was one of the first anonymous ones that we got it's this kind of older gentleman sounds like an older gentleman um with sort of like a southern accent talking about growing up um and reading the Sneeches, and kind of taking it to his Sunday school teacher and saying, well, this is kind of weird. In this book, we're talking about the Sneeches that it doesn't matter if you have a star on your belly or not, we're all the same. Uh-huh. Whereas um, he was growing up in the segregated South. And so it was just kind of asking his teachers and Sunday school teachers and parents and adults in his life about this. And just talked about like, have that being one of the most important moments in his life and sort of realizing like, oh, things aren't really lining up here. And so it's this really incredible, powerful story um, that, you know, comes from this child, children's book that we sort of read and it rhymes and sounds nice and has cute pictures in it, but, um, just is sort of a great way to demonstrate the impact the books really have. Um, so that's kind of the basis of the project. Um, we started a couple years ago and then it's taken on a couple of different iterations. Um, the voicemail collection is ongoing. Um, but we started this like, I guess you could call it like an installation. Um, we made this thing called the Call Me Ishmael phone, which looks. I wish I, I don't have one in this office. Yeah, it looks
1: really cool. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah that that's the thing that really blew me away. Cool. Yeah. Um, I really so again, like it. it's just totally
2: old tech. I mean, it's hard to even find a rotary style phone anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, we hacked them, like open, uh, buy them. They're like little novelty phones. Gutted them, uh, rewired them. And they live in schools, libraries, and independent bookstores around the country right now. And so, basically, if you see one there, you can pick up the receiver, dial one of the buttons, and hear someone talk about their favorite book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Has there been any uh, books that kind of spoke to you too, kind of like that gentleman who read the Dr. Seuss book?
2: Totally. Uh, I have a couple of calls on the website. Uh, I always try and call when I have like a bit of a cold, so I think it's like more anonymous and no one will recognize. <laughs> <him>. <laughs> Um, But one of my favorite ones, um, I talk about a specific copy of Little Women that I have. Um, It was a book that I really loved growing up. I had an old copy from my mom, but I have this one copy that um, is this beautiful, like, illustrated hardcover edition, and it was a gift that's really important to me. And uh, just thinking a little bit about, like, the inscriptions on the front page of a book when you give it as a gift, that's one of mine.
0: (laughs) Oh, what about you, Leon? (laughs)
1: So, um, well, okay, it's kind of a, so for me, I'm mostly into kind of like psychological literature, but I mean, for the most part, like, even though some of the psychological literature that kind of I focus on has a lot to do sometimes with actual sort of, you know, kind of, I don't know, literature, literature, Mm -hmm. I guess, for lack of a better term. So interestingly, I was, well, Alan and I were having a conversation before about Ronald May. So Rollo May was this existential psychotherapist who wrote a book called The Cry for Myth. And Mm -hmm. so The Cry for Myth was pretty much about how kind of American society and sort of just Western society. Society as a whole was missing these sort of great pieces of literature and kind of in um, not necessarily in our history but kind of in the context in the present sort of well at his time in the not, early 90s but in the context of kind of our society and so for Rallo May he said the cry for myth was sort of our kind of innate sort of urge or innate need for stories and how important stories are not only to our sort of personal and psychological development but how important stories are to us being able to function as a society so for Rallo May he kind of argued that essentially that we miss a lot of empathy that we would get otherwise that we would get from reading literature, from understanding different cultures and different peoples. And I think, Steph, that was a great point that you made about the Dr. Seuss book when you mentioned about kind of like, even though it's sort of obviously geared toward children, but it's just really sort of a, a conceptually adult book meant for us to kind of empathize with people who might be considered as the other. And so kind of for Rollo May, he said that like for a lot of our sort of disagreements can actually be resolved through literature if we only kind of read and try to empathize with kind of other people and what their experiences were, obviously outside of being within the narrow framework of our own kind of emotional states and our own, mm, whatever, again, for lack of a better term, kind of toxic emotional reactions.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. For me, it was, uh, <laughs> it was it was surprising. We were talking about this before, to um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows.
1: Yeah, Lalo loves it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So what happened is, um, actually, I know that that was the last book in the series. That was the first one I read. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like blasphemy. Yeah. I know. Did
2: you do it on
1: purpose?
0: Um, not exactly. The thing is, like back in the day, I used to not be much of a reader.
1: Okay. And.
0: I was thinking, like, no, that's there was something wrong with that. I wanted to get into it. I, I knew that there was something I was missing. Like, actually, I'm kind of lying. I would read, uh, let's say, manga, like, anime type of comic yeah. books and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, I was like, okay, let me, like, read a real book here. <laughs> so I saw all the Harry Potter movies, and I was like, okay, I, I got, I guess, one through six. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, let's read the seventh one. Mm-hmm. And it was so good. Like, from beginning to end, I couldn't put it down, and I never had that experience with a book, mm-hmm. where I was like, holy shit, like, I love reading now. And then it just made me, like, really excited to read a whole bunch of other books. Like, could I say anything about the story itself right now? I can't, nothing's, like, coming to mind, but mm-hmm. it was really good, and I just remember the feeling I had when I was reading No,
2: that, you're gonna have to do me a favor and call and leave a message about that one, because that is a totally unique story that we have a ton of calls about Harry Potter, and, like... A lot of them are a little similar. I love them all. They're all beautiful and important, but I've definitely never heard of anybody starting at the seventh book. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: Gotta give me that one. So, Steph, what made you start the company? Where did the idea come from?
2: Well, like I said, we were. it just kind of came from this sort of like playful idea. Uh, my partner and I both work in media and are all sort of like experimenting and starting and stopping different projects but um so that's where the idea came from but it was really like a backburners maybe not the right word it was kind of like a Sunday project like we only worked on it like a couple hours a week like we both both had day jobs um and then really around the time that the phone started um that idea came from just this need to like bring the project a little bit more into some physical spaces where books live, like libraries and schools and bookstores, just because like we were hearing so much from people that right away when they heard a call, they were like, oh my gosh, I have to read this book. Like there's this really like contagious quality that a lot of the stories have. So it felt like it needed to be something that existed in a physical way. And also just so much of the project really relies on getting away from screens and trying to read more and trying to experiment ex- experience this, like, very human connection that literature can bring about. Although I do have to say, in thinking about um, the piece of philosophical literature that you mentioned, um, a lot of our really good calls are actually not about novels. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a ton about kids' books, but we actually have a lot about, like, the textbook that totally changed somebody's oh, wow. life. Wow. One of my favorite ones is about the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So wow, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. um. So yeah, right around the time that we started the phone concept, we like prototyped one of the devices and then decided to do a Kickstarter just, it was, um, a couple of years ago. So Kickstarter was a really different place and it was, um, there was just like a lot to learn and like grow with a community there. So it ended up being this really cool, like super community experience. Maybe it's still like that. I I don't spend a lot of time on Kickstarter now, Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, once we saw how many people were into it, we hit our goal in like the first 20 hours or something crazy wow. like that. And it just felt like, oh, this is something that people respond to. And it's like, it's kind of a weird project. Like nobody makes phone calls anymore. Like this idea of like a rotary pay phone that helps you find books that you love is like kind of out there. <laughs> Once we saw that there were people that were like, "Oh, yeah, we get it and we want it." People were like writing to their bookstores recommending that they get one. They wanted to like donate them to their libraries and schools. It just kind of felt like there was a little more substance to it. So um that was about the time that I started freelancing, and so I was able to work on it a little bit more. And then um, now kind of the the big news this summer is that we actually um, are going to be making a book. So we're uh, putting together some of our favorite calls in this really fun um, like telephone directory style.
1: That's so really gonna, cool. Yeah, it's kind That's of That's a really cool idea.
2: Thanks, yeah. So it's going to be the Call Me Ishmael phone book, and it's going <laughs> to be just sort of like a physical reading experience for uh, hearing what other people love about books.
1: Yeah. wow. And so what to you makes books so important? Oh, that is a big
2: question. Um, I mean, I think going back to what you were saying about empathy, you know, so many problems in the world right now, I think come back to people not being able to relate to each other and understand each other. And reading literature is um, one of the most proven ways to build empathy in individuals and communities and sort of understand each other better. So um, it's been interesting the last couple of years. um, We've gotten a lot more calls that are about civil rights and about politics and about what people are seeing about the world that they don't like but literature seems to be like the antidote to that so it's kind of given the project this like renewed sense of importance that um we sort of joke that our mission is we want you to read more and Mm -hmm. um, I just really think that sharing each other's stories and reading about people who are different than you are or came from places that you've never even imagined before um can sort of make us all better people and better people to each other.
1: Yeah. And to maybe even learn that we're not so different. And I think that yeah. was yeah, and that wasn't that the main point of Huck Finn? Yeah. Right. And, which was technically geared for geared toward children, but it was really an adult like book.
2: Totally. Yeah, it's funny too, one of the I haven't read Huck Finn in years. It took me a second to uh reflect on that. Mm-hmm. No, but um what it's funny, one of there are a couple of like common themes that we see come up from all of the calls. And one that we hear a lot about that I really, really love, and it's actually an interesting way to talk to people about what they're reading, is by asking what books they reread. And that there's really another powerful element of the literature that we love, that reading it at one point in your life, usually because you were in school and a teacher forced you to read it, uh-huh. and then again as an adult, and then reading it again as an older adult, yep. that these same stories and these same characters and these same words can just sort of hit us in totally new, different ways. So I'll have to add. a. Uh, huck to my re because it's been
1: a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so kind of just going back a little bit to the cry for myth and ronald may's book so i mean for him a lot of so the big idea was essentially not only just learning about other people and empathizing with them as well but also even learning about yourself which is i mean obviously the part of kind of the most important part of psychotherapy as a whole but for him um there was this so in the chapter that he wrote about kind of self-discovery or self-knowledge he wrote about this book called pure gint which was written by henrik ibsen so i'm gonna probably butcher this because i haven't read this book in a really long time but for me right kind of as a person Story, it was so important because so Pierre Gint was like this kind of um. This sort of nonchalant kind of dude who was always super depressed and kind of just like going about the world, really sort of complaining about you know kind of other people and what life was like and that he thought that he deserved and was entitled to so much more. And so you know he was kind of jealous about other people and like so like so he was I think a sailor or something in the book. And so yeah, so for him it's like he was jealous about he, he was jealous of like his sailmates. He's like, oh, these people have so much love in their lives and you know they have all of these important people who care about them and I don't have any of that. And so but you come to actually find out toward. The end of the book that actually Pierre Gint had all of this. So but he just didn't value it and so Mm -hmm. the whole kind of point of the book was that kind of Rollo may was talking about that it was the perfect description of essentially the narcissistic white man so essentially who was at at that point pretty prominent in kind of european culture and so Mm -hmm. for Pierre gint right it was kind of this understanding Or the book is kind of in his um it was in first person view where you kind of saw the world through his shades and so his life most importantly through his shades but then kind of as you come to the end of the book you're like oh no he's actually a pretty kind of narcissistic and selfish guy and there was actually this woman who was waiting for him and she pretty much was like deeply in love with him and he just didn't value her at all so he would kind of go he would sleep with her and then he would kind of go out and do his own thing and cry about not being able to find the love of his life and so the point of Pierre Gint was essentially this deep self-reflection upon kind of modern at that time European man and sort Mm -hmm. of what it was that he was not only doing kind of to his culture but what he was also doing toward himself and how he was ruining his life through his sort of conception of what is and isn't important to him and through kind of his and really just his kind of snobbishness and his sort of entitlement that like he had all of these good things In his life, and he just really didn't want to appreciate them. And so, kind of just for Rallo May, the point was like, for in terms of myth, right? It helps us really understand ourselves and get a conception of ourselves in terms of like how we kind of t- what's the word? Um how we kind of ruin our lives, right? And the sort of the things that we do and say so like self
0: sabotage. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like sort of how we self sabotage and essentially and for oh and, and kind of in terms of like the lack of empathy by the way, that's sort of connected into the way that we see ourselves, right? It's like that famous phrase of if you can't love yourself, you can't love another person. So in Pure Gint, right, he wasn't able to love himself and therefore he wasn't able to love other people. So the way he kind of saw himself as this really sort of inferior person was not necessarily projected onto other people although at times you kind of saw the kind of critical and narcissistic side of him but it was also kind of projected in the form of jealousy where he's like oh look at all of these things that I really desperately need and I don't have but I want so badly. And so kind of the relationship between ourselves with ourselves is deeply entrenched to the relationship between the ones that we have with other people and so for Rollo May the idea was that literature can not only help us love other people obviously through empathizing with them but also love ourselves. Because in order to have this sort of full society and fulfilling life, we need to be able to actually understand ourselves. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, so.
0: Yeah. So by the way, I, you know uh, before doing this podcast uh, stuff, I was looking up. Um, I was looking up on YouTube, mm-hmm. and I found this podcast. I think it was the Fighting Girls podcast. If I'm not getting there. Oh email. yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. And I listened a bit, and um, I didn't know this about you. You were, or you are, an amateur boxer. You box.
2: Yeah, that's how um, I started following Gordon. Actually, uh, yeah, I start. I did um, a charity boxing match about five years ago, um, which is sort of yeah, which is sort of funny because at the time I was like, I would say a non-athlete would be like a generous way of putting it, but I was not. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, had, had like done a little bit of sports growing up, but really like never, not through high school, college, my adult life at all, but um, wanted to do something for uh, to raise money for cancer research and found this um, nonprofit that I really adore now and I do a little bit of work with them too. They're called Haymakers for Hope and essentially they take people who have never boxed before, give them three months of boxing training And then pair them with another person who's a brand new fighter in this big, like, beautiful event. um, The year I did it, there were 1,500 people at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York uh, watching my first boxing match. Yeah, totally loved it. Um, You guys probably know there's a really great literary tradition in boxing. Mm -hmm. So I sort of keep falling in love with it the more that I see the art that people make about the sport. Um, Yeah, boxing's the best.
0: (laughs) Wait, so when you say, like, literary tradition in boxing, like, uh, how how do you mean...
2: It's just, it's always been sort of like a writer's sport, like a little bit less now just because boxing's in this sort of strange space where it's like very spread out. There's not, there's so many belts and championships that it's hard to have like one person in each weight to focus on. But back, uh, like in the fifties and sixties, there were just, there was always like one champion that people sort of followed around and it was covered a lot more heavily by really big news outlets. And so, um, a lot of, um, really great writers were sort of following the sport and really embedded in the sport. And that actually kind of carries on today too. I'm actually doing um, a little bit of work with Boxing Insider, reviewing boxing books for them. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really fun to see like as current contemporary fighters have like their memoirs coming out, uh, Mm -hmm. doing a little bit of reading around that.
1: What are some of your favorites?
2: Well, I just finished a couple, about a month ago. um, Andy Lee is this Irish boxer who's retired that I loved because he's tall like me Mm -hmm. and fights Southpaw like me. Mm -hmm. And so I just loved him when he was fighting. I saw one of his last fights in New York. And,, um, she <laughs> this really beautiful memoir with um, with Niall Kelly that was like, really just like got into like the tedium of boxing like so much of boxing is like really boring and like doing a bunch of like the same thing over and over and over again until like you, your arms want to fall off but then it's like sort of juxtaposed with the, these big beautiful events with all of the lights and the ring walk and everything and so his book sort of had that dichotomy in it and then um he also because he's irish had like that totally like lyrical irish writing style too so it was great to read <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, and yeah. what sparked your interest in boxing?
2: Um, it was like really just sort of a fluke. I had had a bunch of friends who um, and people close to me who were sick. And um, this one year, I just really felt super helpless for how horrible the disease cancer is and just really wanted to raise uh, some research money for it. And I hate running. Mm-hmm. So I knew I didn't want to do a marathon. But then the joke's on me because you have to do so much uh-huh. running. Boxing. To be yeah. Okay. So i into a runner anyways, but, um, but yeah, it was just totally a fluke. I had never followed it. I have like one memory of my dad watching a Mike Tyson fight as a kid, but like, it wasn't something that I followed at all. I didn't even know very much about it. Uh-huh. And then, um, just as I sort of learned to do it, I really fell in love with the like very gritty sort of, um, dingy, like gym culture in New York. Like uh-huh. it's pretty much like the opposite of like, the equinox and the soul cycles. Like it's just the same people that have been doing the same thing and the same training and saying the same instructions day after day for years and years. And the gyms are always like a little bit dirty and like, they don't really like get new equipment so much, Uh but it just sort of makes you get rid of all of the, um, the sort of pretense about it. And it's a sport that just really values hard work and showing up every day. And, um, that has been really amazing for my life in lots of different areas.
1: And what did you learn about yourself from it?
2: Um, I think the biggest thing it was just I learned that how much tougher I was than uh-huh. I thought. Like I said, I just I never really was drawn to sports or athletics growing up and um, just was always kind of like a bookie, like nerd kid. So uh-huh. it was just like there were a bunch of traits with sports and especially, I think, with combat sports. About like you know not giving up and being tough and being able to adjust and all of these things that I just don't think I like ever really associated with myself. And when you're you know starting your day before your day job uh, every morning, like literally getting punched in the face and sometimes having <laughs> a little bit of a bloody nose or getting a black eye, like wow. <laughs> just realize like I think everybody because I always feel like if I could do boxing, anybody could do boxing. Mm-hmm. But you just really realize.
0: Um, how
2: much grit and sort of stick-to-itiveness you have
0: uh what time of the day do you go if you go like before work
2: i go when i'm like really training for a fight and like at it hard i try and go at like five thirty in the morning wow um, otherwise... respect <laughs> You know what's weird though? It's like, it's hard to get into it, but once you get used to it, it's like my favorite time of day. It's Especially in New York, it's so beautiful here and being able to like take a mile walk to the gym and just sort of wake up, have your coffee, clear your mind a little bit. It's a good way to start the day.
1: Yeah. And just to kind of pivot back a bit to call Me Ishmael. So I yeah. wonder from from Seth, from your perspective, what are some of the most profound messages that you've received on the voicemail box?
2: Ooh, good question. I mean, so a profound sort of a... a I think the wrong word for it because, you know, they take so many different forms and they're about so many different types of books. And I think, so I I guess there's a couple of things. One is, you know, the type of book that you're reading doesn't matter to me at all. Like, uh, you know, when you say you were reading comic books and you weren't really reading, I'm like, Oh, that obviously counts as reading. (laughs) Like, I think that any, the project has definitely taught me that any type of book can have a really profound impact on somebody's life. So that's kind of like the first overall thing. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of one of, some of the ones that really, like I thought about for many days, there's um, one of our, again, one of the first ones we got, I think in our first couple months of the project, is this girl and her voice is so beautiful. Like it, it's just really light and sort of whispery. And that's like one of my favorite things about the project too, is the anonymous factor. Like you just never know who's calling or where they're from or what they look like. Yeah. And so this girl's voice is just like totally magnetic and beautiful to me. Um, mm-hmm. But she talked about Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl, which was one of my favorite books go- growing up. And um, she talked about reading it and how that she, it made her want to keep a diary and that she, when she first read the book, um, sort of, you know, knew the ending that um, this author, this young girl would face that she passed away in the Holocaust. And it's all about like her experience journaling while she read the book and sort of going through this really severe bout of depression and sort of coming to realize by the end of the book that she wasn't keeping a journal because she was really sad and had a hard time connecting with the people around her and wanted to leave something for her family to see when she was gone but that it actually transformed into this sort of place where she was recording her thoughts to look back on and laugh when she knew she was going to really fill out her life and continue to get old and continue to learn and grow and read and um, that one is really powerful to me and it's actually kind of a funny thing the project being anonymous um, sort of brings out a lot of really really heavy material. Like I think there's just something about when nobody knows who you are, you sort of open up in a way and you sort of let things out that maybe you wouldn't like say to your friends or say on a stage into a microphone. Mm -hmm. So we do get a lot of um, calls about the books that have gotten people through depression or grief or loss. And um, those ones are always really meaningful
1: to me too. Do you remember what some of them were just as recommendations?
2: The books? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath Mm -hmm. is one that we get called about a lot. Actually, it's also funny, I mean, Harry Potter's got to be one of our most called about books. Uh But again, it's like people just like read that so differently and so we have um, one call from a kid who um, grew up in an abusive relationship with his mother and really talking about how he related so much that concept of like the kid that lived under the stairs. Mm which like I read Harry Potter and that was just like totally not even in the way I, and I related to it immensely, but that was not in the way that I experienced that book. So no. I think that's one that's just like a reminder that like literature sort of reads differently to every single person and every single different time that they read it, which I really love. Um, other good getting people over the hump ones. Um, the alchemist we get called about a lot. We have one really great one about um, infinite jest and a guy that um that read that when he was having a really hard time um, dealing with a mental illness. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some, yeah. but those are the books that come right to mind.
1: <laughs> oh, Alan and the Alchemist. Yeah, I like actually like, I uh, brought a whole bunch of books with me,
0: like just in case I was like, um, well, I guess since we're going to be talking about books, you know, I should just be Yeah, prepared. what'd you pick? Me? <laughs> yeah, so The Alchemist, um, see, I read it a while ago, but the reason okay. I read it. It's because of, um, you wouldn't guess, it's because of Will Smith.
2: Okay. Yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Usually when I think of the
0: alchemist, I
1: do not think of Will Smith. <laughs> so It wasn't George Bush? <laughs> what-, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <Huh? laughs> that came out
0: of nowhere. Uh, so... Uh- <laughs> um- so uh, Leon doesn't like that I talk too much about going to the gym, <laughs> but long story short, every time I would go to the gym, I'd be listening to like all kinds of things, music, scenes from movies, all that. And one of the things I'd listen to is like this motivational video, and um, Will Smith would be talking about um, how the Alchemist uh, changed his life and like how it made a big impression on him. Can't remember what he said like verbatim, but long story short, maybe you want to check the book out. So. I ended up giving it a try and reading it, and um, it's, it's, it's about a... Well, to not get too much into the story of the book, because I read it a while ago, I'll say this. I remember, like, for example, when you was talking about this uh, girl in the book. I believe mm-hmm. her name was Fatima. Fatima. Yeah. And um, the times that he would talk about her and, like, how he felt about her, or when he was missing her, like, the things that he would feel... I, like, I resonated with stuff like that in the book. It kind of made me feel feelings that I wouldn't normally feel like in everyday life. And it was nice to have a book kind of like open up and kind of evoke certain kinds of emotions that um, I wasn't maybe used to feeling on an everyday basis. So like in, in certain ways like that, like it made me really appreciate um, that book and books in general, because sometimes it can re- make you remember that there's, like, these other feelings and, like, states you could have access to that maybe really? you, just because, you know, everything's, like, so routine sometimes that you just uh, – you end up having blind spots to certain things. So that yeah. that was cool.
1: And books oh. also tend to normalize our experiences, and I think that's another important facet of reading, that we kind of forget about that. that we yeah. Cer- yeah. Like a lot of times, like people will come in, well for me as a therapist, and then you know, will tell me experiences that, like for me, I'm like, yeah, like no, that's normal, like everybody goes through this. And so it's like technically speaking, because we don't talk about it as a culture, and a lot of what we go through is just sort of suppressed, that most people think that their experiences are unique to them. And so often, I mean, like for me, James Baldwin is like one of my favorite writers ever. And so like I talk about him a lot on the podcast, you know, I write about him from time to time. And so the best thing that I've ever gotten from him was kind of his understanding or his psychology of what it's like to be is the other right and what I loved about it so much and it's definitely it's you know it's supposed to be geared toward the black culture absolutely and I would never want to try to appropriate that but for me it resonated with me because like I felt like the other right kind of in my own sort of psychology and I was like wow holy shit like James Baldwin obviously in describing the experiences of like you know let's say black people right which again definitely is not my experience but in some way he's touching on what I was feeling when I was a kid especially when I was growing up and going through school and I feel like that's like and I don't know man it's like I feel like with literature, if we could just kind of let people know like, hey, you could really learn a lot about yourselves and other people and you could sort of normalize your experiences, I think that a lot of people would be more interested in reading books because, I mean, it seems like that's kind of the biggest issue that we face. Like most people just would rather sit on their phones or sit on a computer rather than read.
0: Totally.
2: Yeah. A couple thoughts there. Um, one is um there's a really interesting thing for both of you and anyone who's listening um if you actually do some uh, research around this concept of the reading slump uh-huh. like it's a like real i don't know if you can call it diagnosable thing but like that just even if you really love books and love reading like everyone sort of gets in these like little grooves where it's just like not really into anything and you're just sort of out of the habit and there are like all of these articles and resources online to help you get out of a reading
1: slump so wow
2: <laughs> i know um <laughs> but the second one is, um, what you're saying about, um, the importance of sort of seeing ourselves and projecting ourselves onto the literature. One of, um, one of my favorite calls that, um, we're actually going to be publishing next week, I think is, um, the house on mango street. Um, and it's this girl who called and she sounds younger and I couldn't even like place her accent for you, but she just sort of sounds like a little girl that likes to read and she's talking about the house on mango street and she's going on about like the sty- style of the writing and she loves Sandra Cisneros the author and then she starts talking about how much she related to the main character and she goes you know she has a big family like me and her family's kind of nosy like me and she's <laughs> Latina like me and I have brown hair just like she does. And she just talks all about like how amazing it was to see herself in a book when she had been reading a bunch for school and she loved to read, but wasn't really seeing anybody that looked like her. And that that's a really like powerful and important thing, especially for younger readers to find, um, you know, stories about themselves that they didn't even really know were about themselves. Uh-huh. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. so I love that. But We actually get a lot of calls. Um, they're sort of funny because we'll get, like everyone, we get calls like pretty regularly, like every once in a while, we'll have like a day or two go by where there's nothing, but like we usually get at least a couple calls a day mm-hmm. and, um, every once in a while though, like my email will blow up and it'll be like, we just received like 30 calls in the course of an hour. And usually that's only happened two times. One is when John Green shared the project and we got like our system almost broke with how many calls we got. Do you guys know him? He's a young adult author. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, he has voracious fans, so we got, like, a bunch of calls about his books, like, really quickly. But then the other time that that happens when we get a bunch in a short period of time is um, when a school is calling. So we have a lot of teachers that actually use the Call Me Ishmael project as, like, a book report. And um, one of my favorite ones, a little bit less profound but still, like, very sweet and totally made my day, was we got um, literally, like, 40 calls in a row from this kindergarten class. They had all just read Cat in the Hat Comes Back. <sighs> <laughs> and so it's like all these kindergartners, I think they're from Arizona, being like, hi, Ishmael, what <laughs> the is the cat when he comes back? <laughs> 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 it was so cute.
1: So in terms of the authors, I mean, like, because I know you said before that your, the phone calls are anonymous. Do you ever get like actual, like when the authors would say that they're going to call or they actually like kind of, um, what's the word? Uh, they kind of promote that they've called your program?
2: Yeah, we get more authors sharing
1: calls about their books. Okay. Um we we have had a couple
2: um and they'll usually like say their name on it. Like pr- like pretty much the the I think the project functions from the standpoint of this is anonymous unless you tell us otherwise. So oh, if okay. somebody says okay. their name, then we'll share it out. But you know, we don't um we don't really have any way to check, so I guess we could be getting crank calls, but usually they kind of sound like the author, but, um, it's much more common when we share a call about an, a living author's book that they'll, um, sort of respond to it and push it out, which is lovely because it sort of expands the project and exposes it to other people that follow the authors and love reading. But it's also kind of cool because it's this really interesting way for readers to engage with work that they love. Cause it's not like, you know, it's not asking for an autograph. It's not sort of like awkwardly going up to someone and like, you know, gushing at them, which is lovely and amazing. And I'm sure there are lots of authors that like that, but it's also like, you know, sort of a different thing than fangirling or fanboying or mm-hmm. fan personing out to somebody. Yeah, okay. um, and I think it's just this way of like showing your art impacted my life in this way. And I think because so many of the calls take this format of like being a story about the book, it's really unique and it's a different type of feedback and love than a lot of authors get. Yeah, well.
0: yeah. And going back to something you said before uh, the fact that it's anonymous is so Mm -hmm. cool because yeah if somebody wants to share something really vulnerable something that they wouldn't say in person or something they wouldn't say over a mic or something like that that's really cool that they have that opportunity to to do that there because otherwise what they would just hold it inside that's one and I mean, I know that's not really the point, but that's really good that you you gave this kind of outlet for people to be able to express themselves and like their relationship to a book or books in general. right? Yeah, it's
2: kind of cool too. I don't know if you guys experience this with your show and your work in podcasting, but like there's something so powerful about audio, and again, it's not anything new, radio's one of our oldest forms of media, Mm -hmm. but um, there's something about listening to somebody's voice and hearing, you know, the speed that they speak at and um, the choice of word that they use without being distracted by like, you know, an Instagram photo filter or, you know, (laughs) how they did their hair that day. Like there's just something really pure and deeply human. I think about listening to audio without sort of a lot of the ways that we communicate and share our lives out socially right now. So that's one of my favorite parts of the project.
0: Um, what's one of your favorite podcasts? Like for me, it's a uh, rogue Joe Rogan, for example.
2: Uh huh. Um, so I, in my freelance life, do a little bit of work on podcasts. So one of my favorite ones I actually worked on, I don't know if that's cheating, but it's called Masters of Scale with Reed Hoffman. And um, it's just all about um, growing ideas and whether it's a business or an art project or um, a piece of research, how do you sort of scale something up to um, to help it reach more people and reach the people that it needs to reach. Um, So that's one of them. I also really love The Slowdown. Do you guys know the show? Uh Uh-huh.
0: No, but I'll check it
2: out. Oh, it's like my best start to my day. It's always only exactly five minutes long. And (laughs) it's hosted by um, Tracy K. Smith, who um, was the former Poet Laureate of the U.S., And she, first of all, has this like beautiful voice. Like I could just listen to her read things to me all day, (laughs) but she does these short reflections about something. And then at the very end of the reflection sort of ties it into a poem that she's selected. Um, and they're not her poetry. They're like things that she curates. And then she reads the poem and it's sort of tied into this like beautiful lyrical opening that she does. Um, and I love poetry, but like, I feel like it's I just don't read it very much. And it's for some reason just like not in my reading habit. So it's like a nice way to feel like I'm hearing more poetry and learning more about poetry um, and have a beautiful reading of it every day
1: yeah and i mean i think that's the main sort of criticism of poetry as much like yeah. with philosophy is that it's very esoteric i gotta say man for the most part i really don't understand poetry for real yeah i really i, I love poetry i i try i don't even know this about <laughs> i definitely don't know that about <laughs> it. i try my best and it's like literally for me it's like literally <laughs> reading philosophy at times where i'm just like i want to pull my hair out yeah no, you can feel uh i mean
0: uh i for example there was this class i took in college um it was a poetry writing class, I forgot the name of it, but mm-hmm. the professor was awesome. Mm-hmm. I, th- I don't know if she is cool with me saying her name, Professor Lipsius, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And she, she got me to write so many different poems and, like, express myself in, like, ways I wasn't used to. And uh, and then when you really get into it and you have to, like, read your poem, let's say, in front of a whole, like, group of people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's, it's like, I don't know, there's something going
1: on there. No, it's he- like, an energy. I hear like, you. What I mean is, like, academic poetry yeah 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 so that 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 tends to actually be pretty tough to kind of digest that's just kind of my perspective Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) well i highly recommend the slowdown then because it's like a good way of like not needing to worry about understanding it you can just sort of experience it and sort of see how the words feel and she usually like says something about the person that wrote
1: it so you mm-hmm. learn a little bit too so yeah. good
2: uh entry-level poetry <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so relating to the idea that you kind of focused on a little bit briefly about creating ideas so i was kind of I was wondering what was the motivator for call me ishmael and what was kind of your mission for it
2: um i think it's changed a lot in the sort of like different iterations of the project like when it first started it was just like would anybody actually do this and a lot of it was really just sort of like you know spitballing and sort of running it by other friends that were readers and seeing what they thought of it um and then once it started to really catch on and it was clear that there was something to it and that people had these stories that weren't really, I mean, like you can find stories about books. It's not that that's something we invented by any means, but I think people don't know that they have stories about books until you ask them. Mm -hmm. And so that's been one of the most interesting things for me is even if you take somebody who says they're not a reader or says they don't like to read or says they can't read or not can't read, but like just don't have the time for reading. Mm -hmm. um, They like, everyone has some memory of a book, whether it's the book that your parents read to you as a kid or the first book that you remember reading or even like the book that you hated. We get some calls about books that people hate. (laughs) (laughs) It's never, but it's funny. It's never like, all negative it's always like this book drove me nuts and I still to this day do not understand why people read it but you know I powered through and I'm glad that I tried it like they always have like some sort of like there's an there's a relationship with a book and there's an experience with reading that happens anytime you try and read a book and um so I think that's one of the parts of it that feels most important to me right now is like helping people like discover their stories and so we're doing a lot to experiment with like um you know, can we give people prompts to respond to? So it's not just call about your favorite book, but it's um, call about the book that you reread or call about the first book that you remember from childhood or call about the best book you ever got as a gift and just finding those little things to help people like realize what their stories are. Um, but I don't know, like I said, I, I think right now the reason the project feels really timely and important is, um, that we all just need to sort of figure out how to get along with each other better and be better to each other. And, um, I, I really think that books can, can help us do that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you found a really wonderful way to connect people together. I mean, I I really hope, I hope you're proud of it. I hope you and your husband are proud of it because it's so cool. Like the idea itself is just to me marvelous.
2: Thank you so much. It's nice of you to say, and I hope you guys will both uh, call and contribute stories to our collection. Yeah, I think
1: now we're going to... Yeah, uh, Alan's going to mention The Alchemist. Gonna... <laughs> or the Harry Potter. Or the Harry sorry. Potter version. we
2: okay, yeah, want the Harry Potter one, but we'll take uh, Will Smith and The Alchemist too. Or even better, let's get Will Smith to call about The Alchemist.
1: Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll get him on the line later on. Then. All let right, me well, yeah. <laughs> So what are some of your book recommendations? What do you think some of our listeners should absolutely read?
2: tough question okay so of recent things that i've read i just finished a book called um three women okay. that is exquisite i think everybody should read it it's nonfiction, which i don't read a ton of but um it's really excellent and taught me a lot about myself and the world right now
1: mm-hmm. um, would be too much to ask how
2: um yeah so the sort of concept of this book is, um, the author is a journalist named uh, Lisa Taddeo Taddeo, uh-huh. and um, she wanted to write about desire, and so um, ends, and this isn't giving anything away, it's all in the prologue, but uh-huh. she um, ends up finding these different, um, women uh, these three women across the country and sort of spends ten years of her life like sort of embedding in their lives Reading their emails hanging out with them she moved to their towns for a little bit to study them and learn from them and interview them and um, The three women all have really different um, Situations in their lives one is um, a young girl who had an affair with her high school teacher one is um, a really successful businesswoman one is um, a married young mother Um, who has children and it's all about the ways that desire sort of happen in their lives and it's just really fascinating it's um, it's a lot about the way that people look specifically at women's desire and how the outside world reacts to that and how women think about their own desire Um, so I I won't give too much more away than that but it was a really fascinating book and I for nonfiction it just sort of read like a novel like I plowed through it in like a day and a half it was great
1: So it's uh-huh. like kind of seeing women through the lens of somebody who isn't a Stepford type wife.
2: Uh, yeah, it's much more c- complex than that, but that mm-hmm. is a fair thing you could say about the book. Um, uh, but that one, and then I just re re-read, I I'm really liking short stories again right now. I haven't read them in a while, but I just reread, um, JD Salinger's nine stories, which is a collection of short short, short stories. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I love that. I think the first uh, story in it is called, um, a perfect day for banana fish. I think it's like one of the most perfect short stories ever written. It's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Um, what else
1: am I reading? Well, Why that one?
2: Um, it just has this ending that I know about cause I've re- I've read it a dozen times and it like always surprises me. And it always just like the pacing of it is so lovely. And the way that the dialogue works in it is really exquisite um yeah i love that one um other things i'm recommending oh i just uh just finished reading circe by madeline miller which is great it's um like a retelling of the goddess circe uh, Mm -hmm. from greek mythology um that one's excellent um
1: what was different about her interpretation of it
2: um you know we hear these stories about we hear mythology and I think a lot of times it's really um, surface level and we sort of know the steps of Circe um, is with the specifically like the goddess that Odysseus spends a year with um, when he's on his way back home to Ithaca. And um, it's just sort of this flat story. Like, you know, she tempts him. He goes, spends another year away from his wife and there's just like not a ton of like texture and humanity to it, yeah. but it's this like, Relatively long book that delves a little bit more into her humanity and her conflict and just sort of puts um A persona on something that you know, we've all sort of like heard about before but was always a little bit cut and dry So yeah, that one's interesting We
0: got we got the basically what you're saying is like that talks about the depth of like who she is as opposed to like the usual Story that's told like we get the surface of it, but this is more like Something that you can get to
1: another person. Yeah, right?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: And, and it's so interesting because that's actually very it's similar to what Craig Malkin did. So I mean, kind of for our audience, so Craig Malkin is at this point is a pretty famous psychologist. And so he's an expert at this point in the, field, in the field of narcissism. And so what kind of Craig Malkin focuses on, especially in the beginning of his work of narcissism and his book called Rethinking Narcissism. So he focuses on the character of Echo in the story of Narcissus. So I mean, ironic or not, obviously, in the story, in the Greek mythology of Narcissus, we tend to focus on Narcissus, right? And kind of how he was like this guy who fell in love with himself and sort of like, you know, he was punished by the gods and whatnot. But interestingly enough, at the other end of the spectrum, the counterpoint to him is this person named Echo. And Echo was this person who was deeply in love with Narcissus. And so she kept following him around. And so interestingly enough in the story, the only thing that she could actually say was she she could mimic back to you, I think it was the last two words of your statements, of your sentences. And so in the story, like we focus a lot on Narcissus, right, and what it's like, let's say to be a narcissist, but we actually don't focus on what it's like in terms of the way Way he affects other people. So in the counterpoint to an echo you actually get to see the way his kind of actions and behaviors affect the people in his life. And, well in this case the, the nymph echo. And so Craig Malkin focuses on it because he says that it's not only the narcissist right who obviously exists in the kind of in the, or it doesn't exist in a vacuum, that it's always some some sort of kind of, kind of kind of counterpoint to him that he's that is affected by him. And so I think that's what this author was doing with her you know kind of um, focusing on mm-hmm. obviously kind of um, expanding the Odyssey.
2: Totally. And I I just generally like really like retellings or like a story that we're sort of familiar with that uh, takes a different um, angle or a different approach. I I always think that that's interesting that it's something that feels sort of like vaguely familiar but told in a new way
1: yeah and sometimes what people do is when they recontextualize stories they kind of allow you to empathize with the character whereas kind of let's say the first telling of it may have been like okay this is what this person did he or she and this is the way their actions affected other people but now in the retelling we get to kind of empathize with them and understand why they did such and such thing and so um i think it was i don't when did we have bill Irwin on like two months ago yeah yeah so um so we had the author bill Irwin on the show who wrote little siddhartha and so what was so important for bill Irwin was to kind of allow the reader to empathize with let's say in in his story kind of the narcissistic sort of uh patriarchal abuser that was little siddhartha's father and so i mean this is not to excuse away his behavior but the point of the story was for the reader to understand that essentially that everybody does something for a particular reason that as terrible as our actions are they don't exist in a vacuum and so bill Irwin's like um oh he said that this wasn't his particular quote but i i think in the sense that at least in that genre he popularized it he said to understand all is to forgive all and i thought that that was really powerful and i really think that that was one of the major points and major parts of literature essentially to understand why people even toxic people do the things that they do
2: yeah one of my favorite um one of my other favorite books is uh, ender's game and one, uh, my husband always whenever i have a boxing match he uh reads this one passage to me that is in a similar vein it's essentially like to know to to totally know your enemy you have to understand them and it's only when you under and when you understand them you love them and it's only when you love them that you, you can defeat them wow unboxing <laughs> with all the time
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow i wasn't expecting that i know but it's uh one what? Of my favorite quotes. <laughs> totally what do you like suppose is the exciting. meaning of that what do you say? What do you think is the meaning of that? Like, why do we, why would one have to love their enemy to be able to defeat them? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: uh, I think uh, taking it out of the co- context of Ender's Game, which is outrageous, is probably important to understanding that. But um, I mean, I think r- remind me of the quote that you just read that was
0: a much simplified,
2: more simplified version. To understand
0: version. all is to forgive all. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to is like to really like rise above. Like, I mean, the phrase defeat is probably like a little. bit... <laughs> harsh but like to if you sort of replace that with the concept of like rise above or sort of not get defeated by or sort of like walk away from I think once you understand where somebody's coming from you can uh, sort of disentangle yourself from any sort of conflict or uh, trying to defeat aliens when you're an 11 year old boy in any case
1: <laughs> Alan I love you and I will defeat you oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think
2: you need but, friendship bracelets to
1: say that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Seriously, I love the juxtaposition there. <laughs> to love and to defeat. No, but yeah, yeah but
0: it's an interesting uh, quote because if you do understand your enemy completely, right, mm-hmm. and then you love them, they stop being your enemy. It's a weird, really? it's like a paradox. Yeah, right oh,
2: that's
0: good. Very Taoist. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but then that's, that's interesting because then, like, if you still have to fight them, that's love
1: that's really love right there
0: yeah
1: (laughs) Um,
2: Lisa will you guys give me book recommendations I gave you all mine
1: oh definitely Alan you want to say Um, yeah uh,
0: so seven okay why not Uh, it's a little self helpy but uh, seven habits of highly effective people okay yeah so there's this uh, one um, since we were talking about to understand all three to all there's this one quote in there one of the habits is uh, uh, seek first to understand then to be understood yeah And when I first uh, heard that, when I first learned about that, I was like, whoa, okay, um, interesting. So then I tried to apply that. in all my conversations with people, like instead of trying to get a point in edgewise or be right or anything like that, when I would hear them out fully and hear what's their perspective, I would then be able to kind of reiterate what I think they said. Oh yeah, sorry. So that's actually part of that uh, habit. What you do is, First, you um, try to listen to them. Then you say back to them in like a summary what you think they said to you. Um, then you do the same thing. You explain your whole point And be, through like this kind of wash, rinse, repeat of doing that, of listening, saying what you think they said, them listening to you, maybe them saying what they think you said, you kind of like find this understanding and mm-hmm. it kind of dissolves any kind of conflict. And like mm-hmm. any times I've, I've used it in my life. Um, it's really worked like tremendously. Like me and my brother, we used to uh, we had like sibling rivalry. We would just fight all the time, and uh, at times it was cute and all that. But to be honest, like it was it was pretty bad. So I was like, okay, uh, let's look to books for help for this, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I tried that, and actually, like to this day, since like I started doing stuff like that and from other books too. Uh, we don't fight anymore. It's actually a really peaceful relationship and it's uh, really like a total flip of what it used to be. So, yeah, yeah that,
1: that book uh, helped. Uh, I don't know. What about you, Leon? Well, uh, so I have two really, for me, obviously, are going to be really good recommendations. So one is going to be a nonfiction book. So it's, it's called Belief. I think it's called Belief. Why are convictions so compelling and what makes them so? Something along those lines. I'm not sure what the subtitle was. So that one is written by James Alcock. So James Alcock is like this, um, I guess, partially famous like skeptic slash debunker and so what the book focuses on and it's a it's a pretty lengthy read so it's about kind of belief systems and essentially how belief systems affect every single thing that we do so they underlie the thoughts that we think right and the the sort of automatic thoughts that we have whether positive negative or neutral they affect the behaviors that we have our interpretations of the world obviously in terms of the thoughts and also our feelings so what james alcock says is that essentially that every single kind of um so in terms of kind of different perspectives especially obviously it's something that we're focusing on here he says that it's actually the interpretations that people make that essentially kind of lead up to different conflicts and different kind of wars and battles and so what he does is he sort of recontextualizes what's going on in the different in kind of different parts of the world and he says like look this is why these people believe these particular things right so it's not to say that this is rational but it's to say that they really think of us as like the bad guys right whereas like we would think of them as the bad guys sure yeah and so for them and i use this book a lot in my therapy sessions where i try to sort of tell people like hey a lot of times like you may be seeing reality as it is right but also a lot of times you actually aren't so some of the kind of rage that you feel some of the, sort of the deep fear that you feel the deep sadness that you feel is actually based on the erroneous interpretation of reality so mm-hmm. definitely recommend belief that's literally like one of the best things i've ever read ever great yeah, yeah. Uh, and
0: steph you ever heard of um maybe you have uh it's a popular book power of now <laughs> you love that one no
2: uh, not, not who wrote it
0: uh, Eckhart Tolle or Eckhart Tolle if, if yeah,
2: I've getting... heard of it I haven't read it though
0: recommended. Um, no 100% yeah um, back in the day, I used to be like uh, Really in my head super neurotic mm-hmm. Like have all these stories in my head of what's going on and paranoid okay. and blah, blah 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 I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> can relate to it. Yeah, it's definitely. both like
2: the things keep going
0: <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much uh, after I read this book uh, the, the thing is it's his style of writing is mm-hmm. so practical practical and like easy to understand that the way he kind of frames like how your mind works and the things that like for example like uh, how we'll see the world through like this filter of labels, judgments, interpretations, opinions, etc cetera, etc cetera. and then like the what he talks about in the book is kind of like how to take that filter off and kind mm-hmm. of see things. Without that, um, without you know, you take the. It's like as if uh, it's like you're wearing glasses, and you have like a speck on your glasses. Cognitive
1: distortions. Yeah. Yeah. Cognitive distortions, everybody. No, I'm just <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, like basically, it's about taking up off those those lenses that kind of abstract your your view of of the world, and mm. kind of talk about uh, concepts like um, the uh, ego. Um, the way he defines it in the book is, like, this this identification with, like, uh, thoughts or beliefs or a viewpoint and how, like, we all do it and uh, kind of how to kind of get present to the moment, how to um, get into, like, uh, it depends on, like, what term you want to use. If you want to be academic about it, we could call it a flow state. Okay. Um, if you want to be, like, he's come kind of coming from, um, you could say, you can argue, like, what, like a spiritual... Perspective, new age kind of book. Yeah. It's one of those kinds of books, so depends on how you want to look at That's it. It's so practical. It's definitely yeah. practical, and it's and it doesn't have too much jargon in there. So it's not like meant for you know anyone who's spiritual or whatever. It's just very practical, and um, for me, I also like made a lot of changes after reading that book. It was really like impactful.
1: Yeah. And so, and the last thing I want to recommend is Bill Irwin's book, Little Siddhartha. So, I mean, uh, yeah. So, Siddhartha is obviously kind of a worldwide, you know, sort of phenomenon, and everybody loved it. And I really thought that it was a great book. And I mean, Siddhartha was technically one of my favorite books before I even read like Little Siddhartha. And I actually liked Bill Irwin's book much more. And so, not obviously only because we had Bill Irwin on our show, but so the thing is, like, with Little Siddhartha, the great part about the story is sort of that concept of to understand all is to forgive all. So Mm -hmm. the reason how I came kind of about reading Siddhartha outside of kind of just knowing and talking to Bill is that it's a story about a narcissistic father so Mm -hmm. because my stepfather was highly narcissistic and kind of pretty verbally abusive and we had this really tough relationship for me the book was so poignant because it really helped me understand why he was the way he was and Mm -hmm. so I think that was really Bill's point kind of from my understanding of it from our conversation with him is that like for me I got to understand that for me it was so helpful because I really got to understand that it wasn't really about me just like in the book it wasn't really about little Siddhartha why his father was so abusive, that it was more so along the lines of his own kind of suffering and his own struggle. And that in the book, you kind of learn that Siddhartha, well, little Siddhartha, that he's this really great kid who had his own kind of emotional, obviously, inner world that was actually pretty complex and pretty beautiful. It's just the unfortunate part was that his father wasn't able to see it. And that's what I, and I don't want to give away too much, sorry, of the book, but I think that that's really the point of Bill Irwin's story is to help sort of traumatized kids understand that their trauma not only is not their fault, but then on top of that, that they are beautiful in the complexity of all that they are.
2: Yeah. Um, I love books about parents who were challenging parents, um, which is funny because I I have great parents. I did not have challenging parents. But um, one of my friends runs the Sorted Library in Brooklyn. And um, it's essentially this beautiful space. I think it's in the New York Media Center. Is what it's called. Um, And basically, it's part library, part sort of community art project where everyone can go in and create a category like a specific section so I did a collection at the sorted library that was about parents who tried their hardest but were not good
1: parents (laughs) that one I'll have to have a read and see if it fits well, oh, but that's really cool. But I think that's the major difference that they're actually trying for the for the kid, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Whereas in this story, the kid the father couldn't give a shit about his kid. That was oh, the problem. Okay. He's excluded. Yeah. So he tried to essentially mold him into whatever he wanted him to be. Oh got it. Yeah.
2: Oh well, have a read. That can be our next uh conversation. We'll have a book club.
1: Most definitely. I would really join that if we ever do. That'd be so cool. That'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. I mean we have pretty much ran the hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: so uh, Steph, if we wanted to follow you on social media, where where could we find you?
1: Yeah, I'm
2: actually at Steph Kent on most social media things, and then uh, Call Me Ishmael is at Calling Ishmael.
1: Yeah,
0: cool. And uh, I think yeah, uh, at the end of the video, I can put um, like a link that takes takes people to your channel uh, on yeah, YouTube, cool. also. So that'd be cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Steph, yeah. any final words for our listeners?
2: No, uh, just uh, keep reading. Send me any reading recommendations, and uh, thanks for
1: having me, guys. Oh, and one final question: What is the phone number to call me, Ishmael?
2: Good question. It is uh, in the US 1-774-325-0503, And um, anyone outside the US, um, there's a Skype. You can uh, leave a message at calling Ishmael on Skype. Awesome. I also just recently memorized that phone number. I. <laughs> Other than my own and like my parents' number growing up, those are the only <laughs> three phone numbers I think I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a good number to have in memory. <laughs> well, Steph, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. See ya. Take
0: care. All right, guys. Remember to follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at Seize Underscore Podcast on Twitter. Uh, Remember to hit the subscribe button and the little bell to get notifications about shows and leave us a comment below the video. Uh, Let us know what you thought about Steph, any books that have inspired you, and yeah, give her a call. and. Tell her about a book that changed your life. It's anonymous, so no pressure.
1: And then also, if you guys can, please leave us a review on iTunes or on Google Play. We would definitely greatly appreciate it. because, I mean, obviously, it would kind of help to get the word out about our podcast and obviously get us more listeners and even help us improve the quality of the podcast for you guys, our current listeners. Absolutely. Thanks again. See you guys next time.